0: Hello and welcome back to another episode of Dua Lipa at Your Service, a podcast series in which I sit down with some of the world's most inspiring minds, including today's very special guest, Mo Farah, the Olympic gold medalist who shocked the world earlier this year when he spoke up about being a victim of child trafficking and domestic servitude. It's a story that's powerful and tragic in equal measure, but one I know you'll all walk away from feeling glad you heard is strength and resilience. Please stay with me after this very short break when I'll return with Mo Farah. For many of you, my guest this week will need no introduction. Mo Farah is a sporting legend who has firmly cemented his place in running history. His four Olympic gold medals for Great Britain and his six world titles make him the most successful male track distance runner ever. His wins in the 5,000 meters and 10,000 meters at the 2012 London Olympics sent the home crowd wild. And Mo Farah's
1: coming down the straightway, and he's going to be attacked by by Deborah Maskell, and Mo Farah's got the double! He's the Olympic champion
0: again! The lasting image of the London Games is of Mo and the Jamaican sprinter Usain Bolt celebrating together on the Olympic podium. Running had never been so cool. But Farah is at the top of his game. Come on, Mo. Show him you've got more. Mo went on to repeat his success at the Rio Olympics and, incredibly, at the 2013 and 2015 World Championships. He's admired around the world for his work ethic, his humility, and his inspiring story. And later, he was knighted by the queen in recognition of his services to athletics. But there's a painful sting in the tale. The official story Mo told about his life, that he and his mother left war-torn Somalia when he was eight to join his father in the UK, was a heartwarming one. But the true story, as he revealed in a jaw-dropping BBC documentary earlier this year, the real Mo Farah is one of heartbreak. A story of family separation, abuse, neglect, and servitude. Here are the bare bones of what actually happened. Mo was born in Somaliland as Hussein Abdi Kahin. His family were cattle farmers, and when he was four years old, his father was killed during the Somali Civil War. His family was separated, and Mo and his twin brother, Hassan, were sent to live with relatives in neighboring Djibouti for their own safety. At the age of nine, he recalls a woman visiting the house several times to observe him and was told that she would be taking him to Europe to live with relatives. However, when he arrived in the UK with this woman, who he refers to only as the lady, he faced a very different reality. He was taken to her house where she ripped up the contact details for his relatives right in front of him. As Mo told me, I knew at that point my life was changed. From that day onwards, he was subjected to a life of domestic servitude, cooking, cleaning, and looking after the ladies' children. He recalls, if I wanted food in my mouth, my job was to look after those kids, shower them, cook for them, clean for them. And she said, if you ever want to see your family again, don't say anything. Recently, I spoke to Mo about living with a secret so large it threatens to overpower you and about his hope that by telling his story, he can help others seek the help they need. His is a tragic story in many ways, but it's also one that will inspire you and warm your heart. I was so moved by Mo's compassion, his humanity, and his honesty, and I'm sure you will be too. Please join me in welcoming this week's very special at-your-service guest, Sir Mo Farah.
1: Good morning,
0: good morning. Hey, Mo.
1: Hi, how are you? Okay?
0: I'm good, how are you?
1: Good, thank you.
0: Thank you for waking up so early and doing this with me. I've been really looking forward to this conversation.
1: That's great, thank you. When you've got four kids, you're always up, (laughs) (laughs) early.
0: You're up running around the kids now.
1: Yeah, so dropping off school and just bits of bobs, but it's nice. Oh, that
0: must be nice. So I'm guessing you're home then and not at one of your training camps.
1: Yeah, now I'm home for for a little while. Nice. How are you? You okay?
0: I'm good. I'm in Australia, so I'm at a very different kind of time zone to you. But it's nice. I feel very at home knowing that you're like, you're in the UK. So this is nice. I feel like a little piece of home. Yeah. My gosh, I've I've done so much. I mean, I've already known so much about everything that you've done and all the incredible achievements that you've had in your career. But I've really, preparing for this podcast, I've really had the chance to, to dive in. And you've had such an incredible life story. And recently, the world kind of found out that that your life is even more unbelievable than what we thought and there are some kind of difficult secrets that you'd been hiding but before we get to all of that I just want to remind our listeners about some of the extensive sporting achievements which have made you a complete legend and something of a national treasure in Britain you won gold in both the 5,000 meter and the 10,000 meter at both the 2012 and 2016 Olympics you also completed the same distance double at the 2013 and 2015 World Championships in Athletics, which is a feat that's described as a quadruple double. Um, and in fact, you're the most successful male track distance runner ever, and the most successful British track athlete in modern Olympic Games history. Well, I mean, my goodness, that just that just rolls off the tongue really nice. And my first question just has to be, what's your personal best for the 5,000
1: meter? My personal best for the 5,000 is 12.53. Oh my gosh. It I mean... took me years to get down to that. Like I never started off <laughs> running, obviously, personal best. It's just over the years, you know, you become stronger, better, and you, you build your confidence and then you start running towards Wow. It.
0: And for the 10,000?
1: 26 minutes and 46 seconds.
0: Unbelievable. I mean, the next question has to be, how do you do it?
1: Yeah, honestly, I, it's something that I love. Uh, as a kid, I started running and over the years, you know, uh, obviously start to understand more. And again, it's all about the preparation, the training. Honestly, like uh, w- without the, the support and the help the people it's given me over the years, I, oh, I couldn't done it. But again, it's all about, as you said, everything. You have to prepare well, you have to train well, you have to be in the right frame of mind and you have to enjoy what you do. And over the years, honestly, looking back now and go, I didn't ever see it as work. It's something that I generally just enjoy. You just get out. and You just go and do your what you're good at. And I'm lucky enough to have, you know, long career
0: over the years. It's just amazing. And it must take a lot of discipline to do what you do. What are some of the sacrifices that you feel like you've had to make along the way?
1: Yeah, it's been hard over the years, honestly. Like when you got four kids, when I started, it was only you know, my oldest daughter, Rihanna. She's 17 now. And it was easier to make decisions or to go away at times where you do like a training camp where you're just in, in the camp mm. and you focus on training, eating, sleeping, and just focus on training. And then over the years, you know, I've got four kids now, there's more demand on them. And as a father, you always of want to course. be there for your kids. But then mm. again, if I didn't make that sacrifice and, and be in a training camp for, you know, I'm away for half of the year, six months of the year, at various places. And it all depends what time of the year it is. That's always hard, but there's not day I look back and go, was that right or wrong? Again, it's just like having that chance and making most of it.
0: And again, Absolutely. if I didn't
1: have the support of, of my wife who, you know, holding the family together, it would have been easy.
0: Yeah, it seems like a it seems like a real team effort, a real family effort. And something really beautiful that you guys have that you share from what I've seen as well. And I'd love to talk a little bit more about that in a bit. But um, you won your first Olympic golds at the London Games in 2012 for the 5000 meter and the 10,000 meter. Can you cast your mind back and tell me like what you remembered as you crossed that finishing line for those races, where not just like the whole country was watching you, but the whole world was watching? Like, how did that feel?
1: Oh, honestly, it was it was the most amazing moment of my life in my career. Say because often as an athlete, you, you know you like yourself. You when you get to the top, you go, "I want to get to the hits," and then you, and you go through and you set yourself as, like stages where you get through. And for me, mm-hmm. always as a kid, it's like I watched the Sydney Olympics in 2000, and I was at the time I was at school sixth form, and I watched that and go, "Wow, I want to become Olympic champion." And then to do it right in your hometown where you grew up and have the whole nation behind you it was incredible because leading up to it when we first got the bid I was like oh yeah it's gonna be in in London and I was like yeah yeah it's gonna be exciting each year as you get closer it just became more and more and to do it it was it was incredible honestly
0: that's amazing when did the feeling like sink in I guess it's hard to kind of pinpoint it yeah.
1: So it was hard because as myself, I never, I try not put too much pressure on myself. I just try and go, just take one race at a time and you go and do it. But then again, to do it in that moment, your whole life changes because, you know, as you said, like not just in the UK, everybody was watching it. And at that moment it was just, wow. It's
0: surreal. Surreal. It's cool to hear you talk about it as well. Cause you know, I've, I've, I mean, I've watched it on TV. And, and for those of us who have watched your races over the years, which I have to say was pretty much all of us Brits, yeah. you know, we've seen the emotional scenes with your wife, Tanya, and, and your children at the trackside. And yeah. for anyone who's listened to you talk or spent any time on your Instagram, they'll all see how important your family is to you. What role do they play in in your success? Yeah, no, honestly,
1: they're a massive part of of what I do. And without them, I I wouldn't have achieved what I have achieved with the support of my wife. And for me, this special moment in London 2012 was just, as you said, when I saw my wife on the track, heavily pregnant with my twin girls and my oldest daughter, Rihanna, just give me a hug. And on that track where you, you know, you made history and you won a gold medal, to just have them there. It was amazing. And they are a big part of my life. And again... As you said, we go back to a little bit of my story. For me, honestly, family means everything to me. And as I got older, I kind of appreciate family. I just try and like do everything together.
0: It's so nice. And, and I um I heard that your wife, Tanya, is also a very keen runner. Yeah. Do you ever offer her any coaching advice <laughs> and how does that go down? <laughs>
1: it doesn't go down too well. But obviously, uh, <laughs> over, the, over the years, she's seen what I do week and week out and she really got into running and she's run half marathons and I'm helping her coach uh, where, you know, she'd try and like follow similar program, not as high, but similar program where she does like the tempo, long run, and a lot of miles. And in fact, she's actually going to be doing a race on uh, uh, tomorrow. So she's oh, really wow. into it. And again, she loves it because she's like what you put in is what you get out of. So on the other mm. side, she sees you put in this work and at the end, it's like, oh, yeah, I run a personal best. or I got close to my personal best. It's almost like, you know, it's weird to describe. It's like just enjoying it.
0: And, yeah, yeah, and competing with yourself almost. Just being yeah. like, this was my personal best. And next, time, I'm just going to try to do a little bit better every time. And I think that seems like healthy competition as well.
1: No, it is. is, It's it's nice. And I just kind of try and help our guy down. Sometimes, obviously, being a husband as well as a coach, it doesn't quite go well.
0: (laughs) I can see that. I can see that. But that's nice. She has you. She knows that you'll be there to support her in every way. Um, Mo, there's so much that I want to ask you about your life story. But as I'm sure you can imagine, the kind of questions that I have for you today are very different than the kind of questions I think I would... ...would have had had we have been speaking a year ago. Yeah. And to kind of provide some context for anyone not yet familiar with your story... ...I think we have to start with the powerful revelations that you made... ...earlier this year in your BBC documentary, The Real Mo Farah. Yeah. And if you'll allow me to briefly summarize... ...you revealed that contrary to what you had previously stated in interviews... ...and in your memoir, you didn't come to the UK as a child to join your father... Rather, you were brought to London in circumstances that you still don't completely understand, travelling with a woman that you did not know. You were forced to live and work in a house, cooking and cleaning while only nine years old yourself, looking after her young children. In fact, you even revealed that your real name is not Mo Farah, but Hussein Abdi Kahin. The reality is that you were trafficked to the UK as a child and have since spent the next 30 years guarding the secret. 30 years is a really long time. What made now the right time to tell your story?
1: Yeah, honestly, it's been hard. It's been quite emotional. Um, And a lot of people do ask that question, why now? And honestly, just looking at my kids, my twin girls are 10. Mm. My son is seven. My oldest girl, Rihanna, she's 17. And looking at my girls, and to me, I just couldn't imagine them going through what I did. And and often your kids ask you a lot of questions. Dad, uh, where's your brother? Why is he not here? Where's your mom? And again, you, you kind of because that story, I've always kept that back in my mind. But over the years, as you get old and you see your kids, and you just try and be honest with them and talk to them and show them what is normal, what's not normal, and just being a father, it, and one of the reasons I really did it is because of my family. I just wanted to tell them, you know, this is this is the real story, and it was hard for me to actually as you said, you kept that on the back of your mind for so many years to come forward now and to tell your kids and and share with them. Mm. But if it wasn't for my kids and and seeing them every day and uh, it, it would have been hard to actually say anything.
0: Yeah. And like you said, for you, you know, family's everything. And I, I could only imagine how terrifying it was for you to be on your own, separated from your mother and your twin brother with absolutely no way of contacting them. Like, can you expand a little bit on what happened to you? I mean, only so much as you feel comfortable.
1: Yeah, no, for sure. Um, it, it was hard for me because, as you said, like when I was young, um, we lived in Somaliland, and uh, due to the civil war, my dad got killed, and I was age of four at the time. And there was family of us, eight of us, and we we all got separated. And like you stay with aunt, uncle, everybody. Because at at, at that time, my mom couldn't deal with coping with my dad's death. And it was hard for us. And at that point, me and my twin brother got taken away uh, to go with a relative family in Djibouti. And we were there at the time. And then again, yeah, so I stayed with him and lost touch with my family. And then at that point, a little bit older, I came to the UK and, and thinking that I was going to go to a relative of mine who lived in another country and, and that never happened. And when I came to the UK, uh, just before I came to the UK, as showed my documentary, I was like two weeks beforehand, came over, lady comes over, looks at me, goes, okay. And then given a name, say, listen, this is going to be your name now. Remember this. And I was like, okay, okay. And at that point, you know, you just think, I just didn't think of anything because you, you're mm. young at the time. You just think, okay. I'm going to a special place. And my dream was always like, it's going to be nice. It's going to be nice. And you tell yourself that and you get through. And and the reality is that never happened. And uh, it it was hard. It was hard. And then again, again, if I didn't have the support of my teacher who actually, when I started school, identified that I was neglected. uh, I wasn't the normal child. There was a lot of emotionals. Uh, things where I was distracted from other kids and, and just because you couldn't, I couldn't deal with it.
0: Yeah, and you probably didn't understand what was happening. Like you said, it's it's interesting that you you put it that way because when you're a child, things can seem exciting at the time. You know, it's like the unknown, it's a new adventure. I think that's kind of how I think a lot of children can be taken advantage of. Yeah, you know, that was one of the things that really stayed with me after watching your documentary. And I think it captured so well like the confusion and the the bewilderment that you felt when you arrived in the UK as a child. Like it's, it's also something that I've been reading a lot about recently that like a child who's trafficked may not understand really what has happened to them and might not understand that what's happened to them is abuse. Like they might think that they somehow played a part in the situation, something that might be their fault or they might have been scared that they broke the law. There's so many reasons also that children don't, don't or can't seek help. We'll be right back. When were you able to, to start piecing together your story and when did it start making some kind of sense to you? So
1: from the moment when I arrived in that house and, and I met with the family and, and been there and... And being in that environment, it was so bad. And I knew at that point my life was changed and I didn't have any contact with anyone, uh, not my mom mm-hmm. or, or any relative. So at that moment I knew it's going to be tough. But you kind of bought up with it and I, and I bought up with it as much as I could. And then I had the courage to go to my PE teacher, the guy who supported me when I was a runner, who, who's been a big part of my life. Um, he was at the school and I said to him, and I, I didn't speak that, I couldn't speak English that well at the time. And I took him, a friend of mine, and said to him, can you translate? And we translated and I said to him, hello, I want to talk to you about something. And he knew it was serious enough. And then I sat with him, and I think when I was about 13 at the time, I sat with him and told him, "Looks, this is not my name. This is who I am. This is what I'm mm-hmm. facing at home. I can't come to... Uh, come to like a athletics club because I'm not allowed. I can't, I can't, there's many things I'm facing. And at that point he contacted social services and they came over and had a chat and, and went through everything. And at that point I was removed from that house and put in another house where it's a friend of, uh, I call him cousin because we feel like we're cousins, but we're not really. Mm. And, and I asked his mom and his mom put me in his house. And at that point, my life has changed slowly and I felt happy, felt welcome. And at that point, then I started to engage in sports and actually becoming a bit more of a runner and just having a structure for me because I, I didn't have any structure and I, I didn't have anything there.
0: Mm. Yeah, it must have been important to have that kind of shift when all of a sudden you had a routine and you started to have like your own personal goals in mind after everything that you'd you'd been through and how amazing that you... Also had your PE teacher, Alan Watkinson. And I'd love to talk about Alan for a moment because he seems like a really remarkable man and a very transformative figure in your life. Can you tell us a little bit about him, like who he is and how did he help you set you up for all your running success?
1: Yeah, and so Alan Walkers is a PE teacher. And he's the guy who spotted me early on in my career. He, he was a teacher. And I, as a kid, you warm up for PE and you go and do a few laps. And you can see I was miles ahead of everyone else. And at that point, you can see I had the talent. So that's the guy who kind of discovered me, took me to a local club. And when he took me to a local club, he actually... Because I told him, I don't have a card, don't have a parent to take me. And he was like, okay, you meet me at school at 5.30 and the athletics club will start at 6 and he will... Drive me to the athletics club, and, and again, if it wasn't from that teacher, honestly to what he did, he, there's not many people out there who actually would do that, and you know, I'm just very grateful that he believed in me and, and actually supported me. and uh, he was one of my best mans at uh, my wedding as well. So we've always been close.
0: I, I love I love to hear that. And yeah, I was going to ask you if you're still in touch today, but I guess him being the best man at, at your wedding, I can tell that you're still incredibly close and that relationship yeah. has just flourished.
1: Yeah, and and you learn to appreciate a bit more as you get older. And you said like, now you're like, oh my God, because at the time you just think, okay, he's going to take me here? And you don't really, you appreciate, but not enough. And now as you get older, you're like, oh my God. That was a big Mm. change of my life. If it wasn't for that moment or this moment, what would my life be like? And even going back in in the documentary, it's like my life has just been here, there. there. There's so many moving parts. And if everybody didn't pay that part, what would happen? And would I have won four Olympic gold medals? Would I become who I become?
0: That's an amazing way to, to look at it. It's a real, like I said earlier, it's a team effort, family mm-hmm. effort, an effort through your peers and your lifelong friendships and relationships that you've kept as well. And Alan being there for you at such transformative moments in your life is really remarkable. And, and it's amazing that you have those people around you, especially during a time like this. I think coming out with your story must have been, incredibly difficult so I think having the support of these people yeah. must have meant a lot for you so that's that's really yeah. really wonderful
1: yeah And I, I think as I said like coming out I didn't know what it's going to be like um, honestly I'm so, just so grateful that so many people supported through this and actually coming forward and again human trafficking has grown mm. and doing this documentary I honestly thought I was the only person But again, Mm -hmm. actually talking to the child trafficking specialists and and coming over and actually saying, there's so many. And I'm like, really happens? And again, hopefully with this, we can make changes and changes can happen from the government point. And together, I think we can make a difference because no one chooses to be in us. And a lot of children who are facing this are almost have no choice of saying anything. Mm -hmm. And they just learn to grow thick skin or just to deal with it and it has affected mentally as well as physically for for entire life and even myself has said 30 years just having that in the back of your mind it does weigh a lot on you
0: of course I can only imagine I, I mean just you coming out and talking about your story has probably had such a positive impact and at least getting the conversation started and helping other people seek help that have been in similar situations to you did you seek help at all as you sorted through your painful memories.
1: No, honestly, I wasn't brave enough to come because I when I told share with my story when I was age 13 and, and told him I thought things would just change. Mm. But with the social services and other stuff like that, I think that my, it just got lost. It took 10 years to, you know, first time I ever saw my mum when I was leaving that. It was it it was 10 years later and I, and when I saw my family and, and people were okay. I was fine because I felt like they're okay and this, nothing is going to affect me now because I can only control what I can. And again, with mm. sports has helped me escape that. In a way, would you say maybe running away from something from that has helped me become the athlete I become today?
0: Yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. Maybe, maybe would you be where you are today hadn't the things that you've been through happened to you? I mean, I guess we'll we'll never really know the answer to that, you no. know. It's a very interesting way to think about it. In in the documentary, you detail how your application for British citizenship was obtained under a false name, Muhammad Farah, which puts you at risk even today of having your passport revoked. Yeah, Like, you must have thought very hard about this and had serious concerns about the consequences of telling your story. Like, did you... Did you ever consider pulling the documentary or yeah. like continuing to conceal your story? Like, I-, I can imagine a lot of people that really cared for you were also really concerned about the consequences you might suffer. Like, how did that feel? What was that response? What did Tanya say, like, when you decided to go public with this?
1: Honestly, it was it, it was hard. It was very emotional to go public because only a small amount of people knew Obviously, my wife, and we went to the same school together, so she knew who I was and Alan knew, and it's only only small amount of people knew. And it was hard because we didn't know what was going to happen if I was going to have my system taken away, if something else was going to happen. I, I didn't know what was going to happen. But again, for me, it was being able to just look at my kids in the eyes and, and actually being honest with them, because at least I owe them that and, and mm-hmm. to them to understand. Obviously, a lot of people did have a lot of concerns, but for me, it was like it's what happened. It, yeah. This is it's this your is,
0: truth.
1: It's your truth. It's like
0: yeah.
1: Just seeing your family and look around and seeing your kids made you realize like I, I don't know. It's hard to say because when you're parents, as mm-hmm. your kids get older, they ask a lot of questions. They answer and and yes, everything you know it's right or wrong, <laughs> and and you guide mm-hmm. them in life because that's our responsibility. And and for me just guiding them the right way and telling them the truth was a big part.
0: Yeah, I think, and, and for you also, like, being able to to tell your truth, to live your truth, to be your most authentic self, I think that was something that you also owed to yourself. Yeah, You know, yes to your children and your family, but also to you, you know, and everything that you've achieved. It's also such an important, you know, part of you to finally put out into the world. And I, I, I you know just from watching, reading and hearing you speak as well, it's definitely not an easy decision to make, but it's the right one because it's, Mm -hmm. you know, you're standing in your power and the Home Office has confirmed that it will be taking no action in terms of your citizenship. And I I just can't help but think, though, how they might have dealt with your case, like before you became nationally and internationally famous, like bringing home Olympic golds for your adopted country, like... Do you think you would have received such sympathetic hearing if you were anyone else with your past? I think it would have been
1: difficult because of what I've done over the years and what you have achieved. You're seeing different, like going back to child trafficking and actually speaking to the survivors, speaking to people. For example, there was one guy we met and he was a decent boxer. It was the same situation as me, child trafficking. And he never got a chance to get papers or to do anything, and even though he was trafficked as a young child, that there are a lot of challenges. Mm. And who wouldn't know? I don't know.
0: What would you say to to the Home Office as they consider like the citizenships of non-famous people who have similar circumstances to you? I think we just have to be a bit
1: more humanity. Um, honestly, mm. no one makes that choice for younger kids, particularly it's made for them, and I think... We have to always think about it because, again, it's just a victim. Even though child trafficking is one part and the second part is what they go through in life. If they've gone through all this stuff and they never got a chance to do something, I, I think it affects them. It has affected me even though what I have achieved. Uh, you, you say a lot of people go, you know, you're, you're four times Olympic champion. You, you've done this. You've been on the podium so many times. You have the whole nation behind you. But honestly, you do go through emotional, you're just a human being like, and I think it's
0: just understanding that. Yeah, beautifully said, beautifully said. Politicians in the UK, I think, seem to spend a lot of time vying with each other to be tough on immigration. And I really wonder what the public opinion was like to your story. What was their response, you know? Because just this week we've had the Home Secretary referring to the number of people seeking asylum in the UK as an invasion. I mean, it infuriates me. How, how does it make you feel when you hear people in power using such inflammatory language like this?
1: I think, in, and honestly, uh, I'm not sort of politician or African else, but again, just to see what you've gone through. And I, I just want to prevent this happening to any other kids and again, mm. human trafficking foundation with the governments and they, they, are, they need to make a lot of changes and hope that it can make some changes. No one wants to be in that situation. Just give them better, not better life, but just...
0: Just an opportunity, I it, suppose. Just an opportunity. Are you planning on doing any work with victims of child trafficking or any organisations like that?
1: Yeah, no, I think there's so much stuff that I've gone through myself that similar people have faced. So for me, I'd love to be able to give back, and particularly children, to me, is a big part because... If I didn't see my kids and stuff, oh, I wouldn't. I wouldn't have done this. And I think it's really important for me to, from the government level in terms of child trafficking, to make changes and, and see what changes
0: can be made. Yeah, you're such a you're such a strong voice for change. So that's why I was I was just wondering. I um I read your autobiography, Twin Ambitions, and I really enjoyed the insight it gives into what it takes to compete at the very top level. I mean, it it also struck me that your success on the world stage contradicts like the image of loneliness of the long distance runner. You know, the, the picture that we have in our minds of a distance runner is quite a solitary one, yet you paint this very clear picture of this team effort that it takes to win world medals. Like, Can you give me a little bit of the behind the scenes insight into the team behind your success? Like who does what and what is their role in your success?
1: Yeah, so for me, um, I'm the runner. And then you, you've got a whole <laughs> team around you. you got your, obviously, for me, a big part is my family. If my family not happy and my kids are not happy and things going on in their lives, it does affect you. But at the same time, then you've got your agent, you've got your coach who sets the program to train. But again, you have to be able to do all of this and uh, run in the morning like 12 miles, run in the afternoon six miles and maybe go gym and try and run 120 miles week and week out try and do three sessions. Discipline. Yeah, you got to have discipline. Even yourself, you know that, to get to the top of to become who you become. It takes discipline. There's it takes a lot of hours. And again, we all see this when it's finished art and it's right there. But what leading up to it, there's a lot of preparation. Yeah. There's a lot of breakdown. There's, there's sometimes you get emotional because you're like, I've got this session, I've got this race. Everyone's waiting for me to do well. I have to do well. And Then it's that pressure you put on yourself and as well as the public pressure. But again, yes. we, we enjoy what we do because we we can smile and, and just knowing that you're putting 110% effort and what would be, what would be.
0: While we're in a break, why don't you take a moment to subscribe for free to At Your Service's newsletter, Service95, at www.service95.com. We'll be right back. Your success is a testament I think not just to your own natural ability and work ethic, but also to the extraordinary efforts of a network of key individuals and organizations, you know, from your old PE teacher, Alan, onwards, who helped turn a slightly disruptive immigrant kid with poor language skills into the country's most successful ever male long-distance runner. Like, I wonder, like, have you ever considered, you know, some kind of mentoring work, you know, in maybe your post-running career or what would be your kind of first few pieces of advice that you would give to your mentees? Like, what do you wish that you heard when you were first starting out?
1: I think it's one of these things, as I said, like, don't put obstacles around you. Anything is possible. Um, honestly, if you would have said to me, you're going to a new country, you're not going to speak English, and you're going to be knighted by her Manchester the Queen, who sadly passed away this year. And to say all these things you will achieve, you would have gone, nah, nah. But and again, it, I think we say anything is possible. If you work hard, commit, keep learning, keep making mistakes because to make mistakes, is okay, but it's how you go about it. And I would love to be able to, you know, come back uh, as a coach or someone like mentor and making changes for younger generation, particularly in Britain, and to know what you've learned over the years and what you have achieved. And I think with yeah. that experience, you can only give back and hope to make some great athletes over the years
0: amazing amazing that's really really inspiring and 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 you're right you know sometimes you have to make certain mistakes in order to progress to learn to grow i've again i keep going back to like everything i've watched like you go back to your personal best you're like all right this wasn't good enough i got to go back yeah. i got to do better i got to you know you're constantly competing with yourself to become the best and i think that's really extraordinary to also see your work ethic and your love and passion for what you do and unfortunately there are, you know, sometimes like inevitable losses and disappointments alongside the victories and and just last month injury prevented you from running the London Marathon. How do you cope with disappointments? Like are they harder or easier as you get older? Like how does that feel for you?
1: Yeah, no, injuries comes as you get older and as you said, like, you know, when you're young you can get away with so many things because your body's a bit more fresh but as you get older you do prevent a injuries, but at the same time, honestly, I was in great shape. I was training in the South of France. I was training with a guy called Bashir Abdu, who's my training partner who runs for Belgium and we were doing everything right. And then two weeks before I picked up a little hip injury, which just forced the muscle and they're like, okay, I'm going to rest a couple of days. And then it still wasn't getting better. And then I had some treatment still wasn't better. And then probably about five days before I was like, I've missed this amount of training for the last 10 days. I can still feel it. I can go and try and run and hop on it. Or where you go, I'm not getting the best out of myself. And I was just like, mm. okay, uh, it's time to, um, you know, pull out. And I pulled out. And then watching back the race, my training partner finishing third, and you're like, we, we're we pretty much all, all the way together in training. So it just, it, it gives you confidence as well as a bit of a down because you're like, only wish I could have done that. But again, you just yeah. got to respect what it is and go, okay, what can I do? How can I make changes? How can I get myself into better shape without being injured? And and I think that's the next step. It's a learning experience. Over the years, Mm. I'll tell you a little bit, when I first did cross country, I used to go go in the race and I wasn't winning or anything, but I'll go in and I just, in myself, I was like, I'm going to go hard at some point. And I felt as long as I felt pain and I worked hard at some point, it was okay, I can justify it. But if I kind of just sat, at the back and just follow through and and didn't use all my energy. I felt like I didn't give it effort, but I felt like as long as you give it effort at some point was okay, but it's not because you've got to win the race, but you still learn the experience.
0: (laughs) I think there's also something to be said also when you know your body so well and be like, okay, I've tried, this isn't working right now. It's better if I take one step back, help myself recover, and then come back even stronger. I think it's better than... Pushing yourself and then injuring yourself more yeah. in the long run.
1: But years ago, I would have gone, okay, I'm
0: going in. Yeah. Don't worry, <laughs> I'm just going to push okay, through. Are not <laughs> okay? <laughs> Literally until you go, okay, I've really fucked up I'm now. Really, really,
1: yeah, really. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I'm <laughs> half a long
0: time. I um, I have to assume that there's some periods of relaxation in your routine. Like, what are some ways that you switch off when you're in the middle of like a grueling training regime? How do you come back to earth also when oh, you're he- off-season and you're doing nothing for a little <laughs> bit? Or does that never happen?
1: <laughs> no, it, was, it happens. And it was, honestly, when I'm off-season, my wife's like, just can you get out of the house? Can you go do something? <laughs> because I'm, I'm one of these people who just wants to be everywhere and just, I can't keep still. And I'm just thinking things apart. I'm just like talking nonsense. And she's like... You just need to burn some energy off. And you do that. And I, I, Having my four kids, I'm, you know, slowly using my time to take him, you know, if my son is football or my girl's hockey and, and, and keep moving around. But in training camp, you just try and like when you have a day off, or normally it never happens, but now and then it happens. Day off is just kind of switching off, watching a bit of telly, just a bit of music maybe, go to the coffee shop and just kind of a bit more chill. And occasionally we we're like, as I'm getting on a bit now, don't play as much PlayStation. But it used to be like, would, <laughs> I'll take my PlayStation with me and we'll play with my training partners and stuff. we would play like FIFA. That's the only game we would play.
0: Oh, that's, that's good. I'm glad you get a little bit of like time off, but it seems like you're very like high energy, always on the go, like looking for something to do, which is oh. which is nice. I feel like I'm I'm a little bit the same. I'm even like, even when I get a little bit of time off, I'm like, what can I do? Where can I go? Who can I see? I'm like, it's there's a lot going on, but there's some method to the madness there <laughs> also, I think. As we've spoken, you know, I know your wife Tanya has been an absolute pillar of support for you since you married 12 years ago and you have four beautiful children which must be a handful as well as a joy. Teenage Um, what? (laughs) (laughs) Teenagers but for you to succeed at your level you know your training takes you away from your family for for around six months of every year and I read a quote from Tanya from a few years ago where she said there's so much I could do that I want to do when Mo retires. There'll come a point when it's time for him to take a back seat. And when it happens, I'll be ready to take over. She's been waiting a long time now. Honestly, <laughs> um, she's
1: been waiting for a long, long time. She's been time. waiting
0: a long time. What does the, the next phase of your career look like? And will it be Tanya's time to take over soon?
1: I think so for sure. And I think it's just at that time now in terms of uh, what my next goal is. Uh, get myself fit and see where I am and how far I can go. And I think the next time at least you owe your wife that because 12 years she's been, you know, the backbone of our family and holding everything together and whether it's mentally as well as physically kind of supporting everyone. And I think that time will come. It's just a matter of time now.
0: Yeah. How do you think you're going to be able to cope with being in the supporting role for a change?
1: (laughs) I think it's going to be hard because I'm, I'm one of these people. I like instructions. I like being told. I, I've always had that in my life. And then, but you taking control of the situation, it's always, it's not my strongest thing. But again, I think that's what I have to do now. Maybe for her to study and, and enjoy that. Something that she loves because she's quite very intelligent and, you know, loves to study, which is I'm totally
0: opposite and go, I'm going to go for a run. <laughs> I love that Mo. Thank you so much. I've, Really enjoyed talking to you. You're you're an inspiration to everyone around the world, but especially us Brits, that I feel like we've we've seen your your star grow and you've got such an inspiring story, an incredible story. And you coming out and speaking your truth is incredibly inspiring, I think, for a lot of people. So thank you so much for, for joining me on this podcast today and, and doing this with me. And I uh I usually like to end my podcasts by asking my guests for a list of recommendations. So before I let you go, Mo, can you please tell me five ways to prepare for a marathon?
1: Okay, five <laughs> ways to prepare for a marathon is make sure the night before you eat carbs, good carbs like, you know, pasta, rice, chicken, a little bit of chicken, but mainly carbs. Secondly, preparing for a marathon, you make sure you get your long run every week, one long run because you're going to be covering 26.2 miles is a long way. So you've got to kind of teach the muscles that you can still run long. Third What's one What's a long make sure. run? It depends, because if you're running 26.2 miles, at least you want to be able to get in 22 miles, 21 miles, and then the rest of it, your body will just take care of it. And I think so many people ask that question, just like, how do I prepare? And everything, as I said, like throughout my career, I've trained for everything I do in races. So for example, when you see me sprinting last lap, In 53 seconds, I did that in training, 52 seconds or 51 seconds. So everything was kind of preparation. And then the third thing is make sure you hydrate well, get yourself some electrolytes, uh, uh, a drink that has a little bit of, you know, sugar as well as salt. The fourth one is make sure you ease down. Because often so many people go into the race marathon and go, week before I'm training so hard. And then they go to it and they push that week thinking they're going to feel great. But again, you go into fatigue at that point because you haven't got any energy left. You use all your energy Mm -hmm. in that training. And the fifth thing is um, just enjoy it. Don't put pressure on yourself, even though you're running for charity, your loved ones, and get through the first half. And then once you get through the first half, then start counting. Because I never go, oh, my God, I'm not even halfway yet. I think it's all that mindset (laughs) where you go, you start the race and you go it's going to be a long way and again I think just enjoy it, take that pressure off you look around enjoy it but just get through halfway and then from halfway you want to kind of pick your way through it
0: just carries you through Mo it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you thank you for your time thank Thank you for your generosity thank you for being of service in so many ways to so many people who look up to you my pleasure and hopefully Um, I'll see you soon for
1: sure and and I'll just say to you keep doing what you do my kids love you we will do so, oh,
0: send them my love. Honestly, thank you.
1: <laughs> yeah, bye Thank you.
0: Bye. Bye. Thank you for tuning in and thank you to Mo Farah for sharing his immensely powerful and moving story with us. I found his story so profound. I'm sure we'll see him cement yet another legacy for himself with his support for victims of child trafficking. He really, really is an inspiration. You can find Moe's recommendations of organizations that support victims of human trafficking in this week's issue of Service 95, our free weekly newsletter available to subscribers via service95.com. I know I'm going to be checking them all out so that I can learn more about this urgent topic and the ways in which we can all help. Be sure to follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Service 95, and I will see you next week for another very special episode of Dua Lipa at your service.